Our reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Luke, uh, chapter 2. I'll begin at verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You be seated. You've heard the word of God read. Let's ask God the Spirit's blessing upon the reading of this word to our hearts. Will you pray with me? O Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. For apart from your Spirit, we do not recognize the truth that comes from you and you alone. By your Spirit, make our hearts lively to believe these words, to rest upon them, that we might live by faith, and help us not just to be hearers of this word, but doers as well. And I pray that you would help me, O Spirit, to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. And all these things we pray in his name. Amen. Some of you... uh, I spoke with last time I was here, uh, who recognized that I had lived in St. Louis uh, for a period of time. It was during that time I had a career long enough as a CPA to let it become genetic. There are no ex-accountants, there are only recovering accountants, as they say. (laughs) But my last job before I began study to become a pastor was with a father and son business. They, in fact, were the second and third generations. It was a business that had been begun in 1914, helping to provide wiring for the St. Louis World's Fair. And it was a company that I was very impressed by with their integrity, and it was a wonderful opportunity for me. Uh, we grew uh, from $1 million to $6 million in sales. This was 30 years ago when a million, as Senator Dirksen might say, was real money. But the thing that amazed me most was how the father and the son worked together. 
And as a result, how much the employees of the business respected the son, who was only four years older than, than I. Uh, Bill was his name. Uh, in fact, Bill French was his name. He's actually the chairman of the board of Covenant Theological Seminary, your denominational seminary these days. But he respected the company's history, and he at the same time recognized an open-ended future, uh, an opportunity for them. And he was a lot like his father. He was firm, but he was fair. But I think one of the reasons that people respected him the most is he just didn't walk into the door straight out of college and assume the business. As a teenager, he worked in sweeping the warehouse. During college, he drove a delivery truck. And he even moved away after college and worked in, a, in another city uh, to prove himself and to get experience outside the family business. And so when he came back, he had already proved himself both within and without the business. And by the time they hired me, Bill was pretty much running the business. Now, sometimes we heard the expression that family business is an oxymoron, right? That when families in business together, they don't remain a family very well. But this was an exception. They didn't have the lack of harmony sometimes between the father and the son. And they didn't have the resentment on the part of the employees because the son uh, viewed himself as privileged. And he had all the respect that he needed to run the business. They were the closest thing I can imagine to the good sense of family business. And today, uh, they have about $130 million in sales, and they have five locations in two states. It's amazing what they did after I left. You see, this business was bills by right of inheritance. But the key to his success was that he humbled himself and he proved himself. Now, we've read a passage in Luke's Gospel, uh, the, the first passage after uh, the birth account of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, where Jesus says he is in the family business. But it's not a business, it's a temple. And we see it in the simple expression, when he answered his parents, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Twice in Luke's gospel up to this point, we've been told that Jesus is the son of God. That's a title that any king of Israel could uh, own. But now we learn he is the son of God in a unique sense, because he claims to be the heir, and not only the heir, but to own by divine right the temple, the place where God was worshipped. But he didn't just show up in his adulthood and announce that it was time for them to hand over the keys. He entered the temple in childlike humility. He didn't come in royal glory, but he came as a child. And I want us to make that connection today that the humble temple child that we read about in this passage is also the sovereign temple Lord. And because the humble temple child is the sovereign temple Lord, he's going to be able to build a better temple in which the humble can dwell with God. This story from Jesus' juvenile stage of life tells us the true nature of God that we meet in Jesus Christ. And the story is given to us in three perspectives in terms of Jesus' relationship to the temple. 
These are, if you will, three different angles on how Jesus is a sovereign temple Lord, even while he's the humble temple child. I want us to first of all see how the boy grows through the temple. The boy grows through the temple. One scholar's called uh, this story that you read the third infancy narrative. Uh, We read uh, two infancy narratives in the beginnings of Luke and Matthew's gospel, but this is a a continuation of that. The verses I read indicated that um, they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, reflecting back on what is previous to this passage. Uh, Jesus was brought into the temple uh, to be dedicated on the 40th day and his mother to be purified according to the law of Moses. And we're told in uh, verse 41 that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. In other words, this was Jesus' 13th visit to the temple, as I count, on the 40th day and every year at the Passover. You see, the boy Jesus grew through the temple. Uh, There is this Passover. It's one of the three high holy days in the Jewish uh, law where everyone was called to go up to the temple to worship God. And that's what Jesus' family did. Uh, Presbyterians might say it this way, that Jesus was a covenant child. He was taken to church by his parents. And we're told he grew up. It's a progressive story. Uh, In verse 39, uh, or verse 40, rather, we read that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was on him. In verse 52, we read a similar statement. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And seeing that Jesus is growing through the temple, it tells us a couple of things about Jesus that are worth noting. First of all, it tells us about the incarnation itself, which, as Glenn has prayed so ably this morning, is God's humiliation, God's condescension. How did God come onto the stage of world history in God the Son? He did it through a lowly birth and through a normal childhood, if we can say it that way. Philippians 2 tells us that though he existed in the form of God, he didn't hold on to the privileges of being God, but instead set aside his godly glory to become a human being and to take to himself a human nature. You know, every early Christian heresy is at the expense of the human nature of Jesus. It's been, historically speaking, harder for people to believe that Jesus was a man than Jesus was God. And so Luke's Gospel begins clearly affirming that Jesus was a human being. Think of it this way. There were pencil marks on the wall in Joseph and Mary's house that the Son of God grew in stature and in wisdom. But there were also pencil marks on the wall of the temple because Jesus was brought there year by year to grow in the faith the same way we are invited and welcome to grow. This is not Superboy, who's going to grow up to become Superman. This is the fully human Son of God, while fully divine. He's, he's incarnate, meaning he's humble, but he also receives instruction, which indicates submission. How did Jesus grow up to become the adult Jesus? The same way we grew up to become adults. The uh, 
non-canonical gospels that have gotten some attention in recent years through the Discovery Channel, History Channel, and places like that, the so-called lost gospels, they all share one thing in common. They don't portray a human Jesus. He appears as a magician or a miracle maker suddenly out of nowhere, but Luke's gospel tells us the child grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with men. These words in verse 52 that I read, they signify moral and intellectual growth. Elsewhere, the Bible says he learned obedience through the things he suffered. There was a progression in the growth of Jesus as our Savior. These are parents who are doing right. Be encouraged, parents. They're not so afraid of legalism that they don't want him to take, they don't want to take him to church until he really wants to go. But instead, they bring him. He's a covenant child. And this is part of what qualifies him to be the savior of humanity because he participates fully in our humanity. What does this mean for us? Well, it means our hope is not just in the fact that Jesus is divine, but that he's human. Mary was left pondering these things in verse 51. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart because it is a grand mystery. Will all the things that have been foretold of Jesus come true? How can God, how can, how can Jesus both be God and man? We begin to learn the story here. But our hope is not just in Jesus' humanity, it's also in Jesus' humility. In our uh, confession, we talk about the ordinary means of grace. And, uh, Frankly, ordinary gets overlooked a lot. The ordinary means by which God communicates to us the benefits of our redemption, the catechism asks. And they're the word of God, prayer, and the sacraments. They're kind of boring in light of exciting testimonies. I remember hearing someone talk about a traveling evangelist who took his small son with him wherever he went, and finally the son wanted to give a testimony like all the testimonies he was hearing at the evangelistic meetings. And so the father said, okay, and this little boy stood up and he said, years I spent in vanity and pride. But it's a good thing to grow up in the house of the Lord. We don't have to become prodigals to be sons and daughters of the living God. It is a wonderful and amazing thing that our Father receives us back from far countries. But it doesn't mean we have to go to the far country to know genuinely and truly the grace of God. So this boy grows to the temple, and he not only shares in our humanity, but he gives us a model for what it means to live the life of a growing child in the faith. And so parents just keep doing the right things and trust God for the right outcomes. And children, tell your parents that it's working from time to time. But not only do we see Jesus in the incarnation, we see Jesus giving instruction in the temple. And that's the second perspective given us here. He's a humble student. We see this in verses 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, when we saw Jesus earlier in the infancy narratives, uh, there are these profound prophetic words spoken about him. But now we see the one about whom it's been prophesied speaking. 
These are the first words of Jesus spoken in any of the Gospels. We don't know exactly what they were, but we know that they amazed the teachers of the temple. Now, this is not some, three, not some 12-year-old in the three-piece suit mimicking adult preachers like you can find on YouTube. It's one who has the understanding of God's law. He's both asking questions and answering questions. The, the, the typical scenario you might expect here would be the teachers of the law gathered in the temple talking about what the law of Moses meant, which was supreme for the Jews. Isaiah 11 had told us there would be someone who would come along that would be like this Jesus. There shall, be, there shall come forth a, to, a, shoot, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. This is not a child of experience. This is a child of wisdom and understanding. This is not a child with a testimony, but this is a child who is in comprehension of the teachings of God's Word. Now, eventually, his knowledge of God's Word is going to end with disfavor. In Luke chapter 4, he's going to stand up in the synagogue in Nazareth and announce the year of the Jubilee, reading from the Isaiah scroll, and he's going to say, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. And the crowd would eventually react angrily because he would point out in Israel's history that God's people had not always responded in repentance and faith to God's word. In fact, they'd been resistant and hard-hearted and proud. And Jesus would one day take that message to the temple during Holy Week, as we call it, uh, when he came in on Palm Sunday and, and eventually came to the cross on Good Friday. But his first venture into the temple in his burgeoning adulthood, is one in which he gently teaches and asks questions, and the teachers of the temple are amazed. It's the same place where he would come later to announce that the time for reckoning for the temple had come. And this is a really significant, it's almost like a window on the whole of Luke's gospel here, because beginning here, and progressing all the way throughout Luke's gospel, we have a progression toward the temple. Because Jesus, as the heir to the temple, was coming to collect the rent. He tells a parable along those lines about, about servants that a landowner had sent to collect the rent from those who had been entrusted with, with a vineyard. And each time they rejected the servants of the landowner, and finally the landowner said, I'm going to send my son. Surely they will listen to him. But when the landowners, or when the, when the, when the tenants saw the son of the landowner coming, they said, here comes the son. If we kill the son, the vineyard will be ours. And Jesus turned to the crowd, what should be done to these wicked tenants? And, and they said, let them be put to a wicked end because it was an outrageous thing to think about. And Jesus said, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. So one way of reading the whole of Luke's gospel is to see Jesus progressively moving toward God's temple to ask for a reckoning for the stewardship of that temple. One scholar said this, a gospel of Christmas alone is not a whole gospel. The same Jesus who comes into the temple, his father's house here in 
Luke chapter 2 is the same Jesus who comes into the temple and chases out the money changers in Luke chapter 19. The whole gospel is the whole Jesus. My daughter's a graduate of Yale University. Uh, her freshman year, she lived in a dorm where, uh, by line of sight, she could see a small, nondescript stone building on High Street in New Haven. This little, nondescript, non-labeled, no-signage building is known as the meeting place of Skull and Bones. Now, the Skull and Bones is one of the most notorious and well-known secret societies on earth. It's been satirized by Gary Trudeau in Doonesbury. It's been imaginized in films. And it's a, it's a society that exists exclusively and strictly for the benefit of its members. And its mystique only adds to the status of the privileged who are invited to join. And that's really a picture of what the temple had become in Jesus' day, a place for the privileged a place where scribes walked around in royal robes, but who in reality devoured widows' houses, Jesus said. When I grew up in a little small town in Illinois, one of my great responsibilities uh, when I became a fifth grader was to be a line leader, patrol line leader, which meant we would get all the children two blocks away from the school and then leave them for them to walk home or whatever. And my route was named after the building of a secret fraternal organization that existed a block from my school. And I was always intrigued with that building all my growing up years because, you see, it was a, it was a wonderful brick building in a, in, a, in a little town that had very little to offer by way of architecture. And what was curious is all the windows had paint on the inside so no one could look in. And I never knew anybody personally that ever went in there, at least that I knew of, because it was secret. Well, that secret fraternal organization has declined, and I think they've merged with another one in the next town over. And today that building is Miss Minnie's Chat and Nibble, where you can get the best butter rolls in town. And I love to go there when I go back and see family. And now there's a church meeting where the old uh, fraternal organization used to meet, and the windows have been scraped off. And what a change from an insiders-only building to everyone, or as we might say, y'all come. And this is what the boy Jesus is beginning to prosecute in his mission. It's what the coming of the Lord and the coming of Jesus, it's one of the things that's happening in Luke's gospel. Because Jesus understood the Father's intentions of what his temple was to be. Because the prophet Isaiah had said, my house is to be a house of what? You can answer. Prayer for all nations. In Deuteronomy 12, God said, one day, through Moses, he said, one day I will choose a place for my name to dwell. And I will be worshipped there and there alone. And eventually... Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is brought to that place in the life of David. And then after David, Solomon builds the temple there. And Psalm 48 says, Great in Zion is the Lord because the temple is there. 
It is the joy of the whole earth, the psalmist says. How can Israel's temple be the joy of the whole earth? Because it was God's intention from the beginning to bless the nations through his covenant servant Abraham. And when God chose a place for his name to dwell, it wasn't to be a secret society for insiders only. It was to be a house of prayer for all the nations from the very beginning. And so here we see early in Luke's gospel, the boy Jesus beginning to instruct the stewards of the temple, the priests and the, and the, and the, and the scribes, about the temple's true purpose, according to the law of God. And when he's baptized in the next chapter by John the Baptist, there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The boy Jesus comes into the temple to instruct God's people about the true purpose of God's temple. And it has instruction for us along these lines as well. It tells us that we, as now the heirs to whom the temple has been given according to that parable that I mentioned, that the vineyard that was taken away and given to others who would produce the fruit of it, that has been given to the followers of Jesus Christ, the followers of the rejected cornerstone. Why is he rejected cornerstone? Because he was rejected by men, he was crucified on the cross, but why is he a cornerstone? Because he is a cornerstone of a new temple. In John's gospel, the second chapter, Jesus came into the temple and drove out the money changers. And they asked him by what authority he did it. And he said, I tell you, tear down this temple and I will raise it in three days. And they said, it took 40 years to build this temple. How will you rebuild it in three days? But John tells us he was speaking of himself. He is the cornerstone of a new temple. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we are being added together, Peter says in chapter 2 of his first letter, we are being added together as living stones, as a holy priesthood, a royal nation. A stone temple, Solomon said, could never contain God, and he was right. But a resurrected Son of God temple is big enough for the nations. And we, along with every visible church on earth today, every true visible church on earth today, we worship together as one temple brought together by the Spirit, united to Christ by faith, given the Spirit as an inheritance, as a down payment on what is now ours in Him through union with Christ. And so we must listen to the Son about the true purpose of His temple, which is not to be a a closed place for insiders, but to be an open pavilion for the world to come. And the world has come in the 20 centuries since that stewardship was handed over to the fathers of Jesus. So the boy Jesus grows through the temple. The boy Jesus gives instruction in the temple. And finally, the boy Jesus claims ownership of the temple. As we've already pointed out several times, he says this is his father's house. Now, I appreciated Glenn's prayer for the college students who are home. Um, There's a a, a lot to be said about uh, how the Christian faith engages 
uh, the university in various contexts. Uh, my daughter's a Yale and Northwestern graduate. My son is a Stetson student right now. You know, one of the favorite tricks that religion professors like to play is to say, look, uh, the, the oldest gospels don't tell us Jesus is God. And if you watch Stephen Colbert, at least in his previous show, you might have seen one of these scholars on, appear on the show from time to time. Colbert had the best of him as a believing Catholic. But make no mistake about it, if you've heard a university professor say Jesus has never called God in the first three Gospels, the oldest Gospels, uh, that's just simply not true. Jesus doesn't say, I am, before Abraham was, I am, like he says in John's Gospel. But there are other ways in which Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that Jesus is divine. And when Jesus says, I am in my Father's house, he is claiming something either audacious or something immensely glorious. He is claiming the rights and the privileges over this place where God had chosen for His name to dwell. Now, we have to step back a minute, and perhaps some of you mothers especially here are thinking about this. What parent hasn't lost track of a child at one time or another? I mean, every parent at least has a nightmare, if not a real version of losing track of their child in a, in a crowd. Um, and I, one of my students actually said, how can Jesus' parents not be like reported to DHS or DFS or whatever they're called uh, here in Florida? Well, there was a, an entourage, a, a stream of pilgrims and many extended family members. And, and perhaps there's a parent here who's made a, a, a soccer or a school uh, trip uh, with multiple uh, vans and, and cars and thought your child was in one and they wasn't. I remember my daughter Rachel went missing uh, back in uh, uh, the mid-90s. She was probably about four or five years old. And my wife and the other girl who was missing, her mother, were frantic until they, after about a half an hour, heard a faint banging on the trunk of her car. And thankfully uh, found my daughter and her other friend, uh, who's named Rachel, uh, being separated from parents uh, is a a fear-inducing experience, to say the least. Mary and Joseph's experience is universal parental experience. And she says to Jesus, your father and I, we're looking for you. And Jesus, without renouncing the paternalism of Joseph, claims a greater paternity, doesn't he? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And there's a little word here, and sometimes little words make big differences. He said, I must be. It's a word of necessity. Now, if you could go through Luke's gospel and circle the word must, every time Jesus says it or it is said about Jesus, you would find it is said frequently. A few dozen times. What is it about must in Luke's gospel? Well, Luke, as I said a few weeks ago when I was with you, he's, he's presenting the life of Jesus as a universal plan for all of the world. An audacious or else immensely glorious claim. And that word must is most often used for Jesus' movement toward Jerusalem and his movement toward 
the cross. I think it's very likely, if not certain, that here when Jesus says, I must be in my Father's house, that Jesus is mindful that there is a necessity that will await him. It is yet 20 years down the road. But he came into the world for this purpose, the Bible tells us. That he would give his life as a ransom for many. Because the temple also was a place of divine forgiveness and mercy. And so he comes not just as the Lord of the temple, the one for whom it had been built, the one who in the eternal counsel of the triune Godhead chose that place for his name to dwell. But he also comes into the temple as the one who will give his life as a ransom for many. It is appropriate that he came first at the Passover because it would be at the Passover where he would be sacrificed on the cross for our sins. Israel was waiting for this, by the way. If you know something about Ezekiel's prophecies, you know he had a vision of the glory of God left the temple when God's people were taken into exile in Babylon. That the glory of God that had settled on the temple in Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 7 and 8, the glory that had settled on the temple had departed when Israel was taken into exile because of the disobedience of their covenant-breaking And we've never read, even though the temple was rebuilt some 400 years earlier, 500 years earlier, we've never read or heard in the Bible that the glory returned to the temple. But Israel's waiting for it. If you read Isaiah the prophet, you see that's it. They're waiting, not just for restoration from exile, but they're waiting for the glory of God to come back to the place for His name to dwell. Because when God came back, they would be restored, not simply to their land and to their temple, but they would be restored to Him. John's Gospel opens with a very clear statement that the glory became flesh and dwelt among us. Luke just tells it differently, that the Lord, Christ the Lord, has come into His Father's house. And he's coming to claim his right of ownership, but he's also coming to lay down his life. Even so early in his life, he is cognizant of his mission. My friend Bill, one, uh, one great advantage he, has, he had was he worked his way up. But from day one, everybody knew that he was the future heir. But it was also one of his advantages that he cared about people, that he treated people well. In fact, I think one of his greatest joys was to hire people, to provide livelihoods. They were always quick to cut their own wages when it was necessary if it meant not cutting other people's wages. They were always quick to sacrifice if they were able to keep others employed. Because what is it to have a business if you can't bless others with it? And what was it to him, a son, who understood how hard his grandfather and his father had worked to build up this business, what was it to him to steward this business as the next generation 
if it wasn't to continue to bless. Jesus comes into the temple, his father's business. He comes to take the keys out of the hands who have abused it and treated it as a a privilege and who have presumed upon their status. And he has taken it away and given it to others who will produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. We are that new temple. And Christ, by the Holy Spirit, has inhabited with us with His glory. We see the boy Jesus growing through the temple, modeling for us what a pious and godly life is to be, but also teaching us something about the nature of what God is doing for us in Jesus. The boy gives instruction in the temple, teaching us the true meaning of God's law and His true purposes for His dwelling place. And the boy Jesus claims ownership of the temple. And we are that temple, built of living stones on the rejected cornerstone, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, but we're living stones. And Peter tells us that we have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light in order to exhibit the excellencies of him who has called us. This is our temple religion in our dear temple Savior, Jesus Christ. Not simply providing us a living, not simply providing us a place to go on Sunday morning, as wonderful and blessed as that is, but a place to exhibit God's glorious presence as a house of prayer for all nations. May God give us the grace to do that. Let's pray. God, help us daily by our lives together, our common life together as a church, to pay the rent, to be good stewards, to exhibit your grace and your goodness so that the nations will worship at the mountain of the Lord and bring tribute to Him. O Lord, as the kings from the east brought their gifts to lay at Messiah's feet, O Lord, may we be effective and faithful to call the wealth of nations to come to Jesus Christ. We give you great thanks that we are part of that new temple which you have built by your resurrection from the dead and by your giving of the Spirit. And we pray, especially during these times where the subject of Jesus naturally arises to the lips and minds of many, that you would help us to declare Him as the God in the flesh who inhabits our praises, but also whose flesh is in heaven, giving us a hope in this life and the life to come. We pray it in His name. Amen.